Dear Father, we are thankful for the life of your Son, Jesus the Messiah. We thank you for the promise of the Messiah from eternity past, the promise of salvation through him as well as glory um, in him. We thank you that he is the representation of your glory, the exact image of your glory. We praise you and we thank you for his work here on earth and in us, the body of Christ. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We got to finish up a little bit of our previous lesson, lesson 14, because we got through the testimony of Peter, where Peter declared Jesus to be the Son of the, or the Messiah, the Son of the God who is the living God. Then we saw the transfiguration. We saw evidence of the kingdom in the glory of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But now, We are in this section of Jesus training his disciples. He has revealed the church to the disciples in one place already, in Matthew 16. This is the very first reference to the church. It does not occur before Matthew 16. And it is not repeated again after Matthew 18, although the training that he is giving these disciples will prepare them for their ministry in the church. While he is still on earth before the cross, his ministry is to the Jews. Once the Jews, or once the uh, three disciples who had gone up with him on Mount Hermon, where he was transfigured, they came back and they found the rest of the disciples had attempted to cast out a demon causing muteness. This is a messianic miracle, one that only the Messiah can do. And he told them they should have relied on God through prayer, not attempting to cast this out by their authority. And so we had, uh, or we got to witness, again, the partial blindness of the disciples. They still don't get the whole picture. And they are not going to get the whole picture until Jesus is resurrected. At that point, they will come into a deeper understanding of all the words that he said. And then when the Holy Spirit comes upon them in the day of Pentecost, he will lead them into all knowledge, reminding them of all the things that Jesus Christ had said and taught them during his earthly ministry. But this is where we stopped. We stopped in a somewhat lengthy discourse that Jesus has with his disciples about partiality and pride. They uh, start to gain seek on one another, wanting to know who is going to be number one in the kingdom. Peter seems to be getting particularly special treatment. James and John are not far behind him, so everyone's kind of wondering, where do I stand in the kingdom? And they're doing this primarily because they are under the assumption that the kingdom will be set up any day. They have not quite got the picture that the kingdom has been rejected and postponed. Now, they are right on the heels of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is going to be the second half of our lesson this evening. And it is understood from Zechariah 14 that Tabernacles is the feast that Messiah will fulfill when he establishes the Messianic kingdom. You can almost feel the anticipation in their voices as they wonder what position they are going to have in just a few days in the kingdom of the Messiah. They don't yet see the full program. They are not yet listening to Jesus' words that he must first die. The first instance here comes in uh, 
the temple tax ordeal. And this is where the disciples perhaps start to uh, wonder, is Peter the number one disciple? Because they have come back into Capernaum. They have been in Gentile territory this whole time, and now they are back in Capernaum under Jewish jurisdiction. And so it's no surprise that they are met by uh, two tax collectors who are wondering why Jesus is six months delinquent in paying his temple tax, which was due before Passover, and it's, which is early spring, and now it's early fall, and he has not yet paid his temple tax. So they ask Peter, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax, or the half shekel tax? And Peter kind of flippantly just says, yes, he does not pay the temple tax. But then when he came into the house, Jesus speaks to him first. Jesus didn't have to ask Peter what happened. Jesus already knew what happened. And so he asks Peter, uh, from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Now, the obvious answer to this is they collect them from strangers, not sons. And so Peter says, from strangers. Then Jesus said to him, so the sons are exempt. Now, Jesus is agreeing with Peter's theology. No, Jesus does not pay the temple tax. But Peter doesn't understand why Jesus doesn't pay the temple tax. He does not fully understand yet who Jesus is and all the applications of it. He knows he is the Messiah. He knows he is the Son of God. But it was a new concept for them that the Messiah would be the God-man himself. And so he says, the sons are exempt, however, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Now, the temple tax was an issue of the Mosaic law. It was required. Jesus was not interested in causing conflicts over the actual Mosaic law. He didn't want to step on the toes of the leaders who were rightly collecting these taxes for the temple, but unfortunately wrongly trying to collect it from Jesus. They didn't understand who Jesus was. They did not believe he was the Messiah, the Son of God, and therefore the uh, Son of the temple. They didn't understand that the temple belonged to him, and so paying a tax to himself would be unnecessary. And so for this reason, he did not want to cause a conflict. His conflict is not in the written law. His conflict is in the oral law. So Peter learns two things from this, actually three things. One is that Jesus is the king of the temple. He is the ruler of the temple. And so they are sons of the temple. They are spiritual sons of Jesus. He also learns that Jesus is able to provide for their needs. Here, Jesus uses nature to provide for their needs. This is not something that just any teacher could do. Jesus alone was able to tell Peter, go back to your old job of fishing for just one moment. The first fish you catch is going to have a shekel in its mouth that will pay the 
two, or the half shekel tax for both you and for me. This is the providential work of God enacted through God, Jesus the Messiah. But this seemingly preferential treatment to Peter raises the question, who is number one in the kingdom? They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? They kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Their pride was leaking through. They weren't seeking here the glory of God, the glory of the Messiah. They were seeking self-glorification. This was an issue, and this would be an issue for Jesus' disciples because they needed to be leaders of men. And leaders of men don't glorify themselves, but they glorify God and are glorified by God. And so sitting down, the manner of a teacher in Israel, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all the servants of all. And then he takes a child who is near him and he creates this extended metaphor using this child, a visual aid, something physical that he is able to use to teach them something spiritual. He sets the child before them and taking him in his arms, he said, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Now he is teaching the disciples here that they need childlike faith and to receive those who have faith like a child. This is simple dependency on God. A child doesn't wonder what his position in the family is. Is his father his ruler, or is he the ruler? Now, I know kids try to wonder who is the favorite among the parents. This is only natural. But when it really comes down to it, it's well understood that the parents love all the children. All the children are equal among the parents. And it is faith and faith alone that is going to elevate and glorify those in the kingdom. And it is not the righteousness of the believer that they receive, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so the righteousness of Jesus Christ becomes the righteousness of each person who believes. Therefore, there is no elevation of one over the other because they all have the identical righteousness of Christ. Now, they interrupt Jesus while he's talking. They want to tell him about something else they did, and they're pretty proud of. John says to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Now, hopefully, they got the message that among the twelve, one's not going to be elevated above the others. But what they didn't understand yet is that the twelve aren't elevated above all other believers. Jesus said, do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Just because they were not part of the twelve does not mean they are not followers of Jesus. Just because they are not disciples who have been called to full-time ministry with Jesus for a special ministry, does not mean they are not useful in the body. 
all believers can be used and will be used of God if they are operating in his name. And so he tells them not to hinder those who are not part of the twelve, but working in his name. For he who is not against us, Jesus says, is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. This is a small act of service, but even this small act of service will be rewarded in the kingdom. These acts that are done in faith have a reward waiting for them in the kingdom. Even those who only are able to give a cup of water to the servant of God will receive a reward for that service. And that brings him then into a discussion on rewards in the kingdom. He continues his metaphor of this child, those who have faith like a child, simple faith, simple dependency. You don't want to hinder those whose faith is simple like a child's. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now this verse is often quoted, rightly so, to speak of physical, real children. And that is the foundation here of what Jesus is teaching. He's taking something real from the known world that is true. But don't forget that he is also using this to teach of believers who have faith like a child. We do not hinder children in their childlike faith. That does not mean we are off the hook for hindering other believers who have a childlike faith. That is the metaphor that Jesus is drawing. This is the physical example he is using to teach some spiritual truth. Little faith is still big faith when it is in the proper object, Jesus the Messiah. And so he says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling blocks come. Now notice here he is speaking to believers who might hinder other believers. This is not the operation of believers to be stumbling blocks to one another. When they do so, they operate just as Peter had when he rebuked Jesus. They are operating under the power of Satan, and they are doing his will and bidding. They are relying on the sin nature rather than on the new nature. And so Jesus drives the point home getting to the root of these issues. He says, if your hand and your foot cause you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life cripple or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. Now, Jesus is not here teaching self-mutilation. He is not teaching the believer to chop off physical parts of his body that he is using to sin. 
He is teaching them to get to the root of the issue. And the root of the issue isn't the instrument you use to sin. The root of the issue is the sin itself. And so he returns to his metaphor, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. The Bible does teach of guardian angels, and he teaches that they are always watching. We know that they watch to see how we act, but they also watch and report to God how we are treated and how we act. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. Now part of the doctrine of rewards in the kingdom deals with the doctrine of judgment. There is no reward before there is judgment. Judgments or rewards come through judgment. We often think of the term judgment only in a negative sense, but for believers it has a positive sense. It tries and proves that which has been stored on our account in heaven. Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now Jesus here in saying that everyone will be salted with fire is speaking of judgment. Judgment, this refining judgment, comes through fire both for believers and for unbelievers. The difference is the believer by his nature in Christ cannot, how to say that, cannot not survive the fire. But the unbeliever who does not stand on the foundation of Christ who does not have Christ's righteousness, cannot survive the fire. 1 Corinthians 3.10 teaches, According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is the only foundation upon which you can stand in the day of judgment. Anything built on a different foundation will be burned up because its foundation is not there to support it. He continues, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. Judgment makes these works become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. Anyone who has stood on the foundation of Jesus Christ, which is simple faith like a child, will survive this judgment of being salted with fire. Whether or not he has works on his account that will survive that fire as well depends on whether he has done those works by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, or whether he has attempted to accumulate those works to his own account by his own nature. It is not the 
sin nature, it is not the flesh that accumulates good works and rewards in heaven. It is the Holy Spirit working through us that puts or that uh, creates these good works that when salted with fire can withstand that fire. But that is the judgment only for believers, only for those who stand on the foundation of Jesus Christ, which Paul and the other apostles had laid. There is another judgment, and it is also by fire. Believers will never set foot in this judgment. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is no foundation of Jesus Christ mentioned here. There is no foundation of Jesus Christ upon which they stood. They could have. Each one of these had the opportunity to trust God. None of them chose to stand on that foundation, and none of them survive judgment by fire, because it is only Christ in us who survives the fire. And so Jesus then teaches them a little bit about church discipline. This is never really a fun topic to talk about, but it is a necessary topic. This is the second and only place in the Gospels that the church is mentioned. These are preparations for church doctrine. They have some similarities to being cast out of the synagogue. We'll look at that hopefully a bit tonight. Actually, no, next week. But this is not the same as being cast out of the synagogue. Jesus is teaching new doctrine that will be present in the church age for the church. He starts here with the restoration principle. One who falls into sin in the church ought first to be restored. If restoration is impossible, then discipline will have to take over. So he says to them, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he, have, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search for the one that is straying? If it returns, or if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perishes. Now this perishing, we might automatically try to apply that to spiritual death, and it has nothing to do with spiritual death. This would not be one of his sheep if it could experience spiritual death. This would contradict all other biblical doctrine of soteriology about eternal security. They are in his fold because they belong to him. But to depart from his fold risks physical death. Just like the shepherd does not want any of his sheep to experience physical death because it wanders away from the fold, 
So Jesus does not want any of his sheep to experience physical death because they depart from the fellowship. And so he puts in a process of restoration. Now there is a process of restoration to God. This is confessing your sin. When you confess your sin to God, he is faithful and true to forgive you your sins. But here, this is dealing with expulsion from the fellowship of believers. How do you restore a believer to fellowship among fellow believers? If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, I like to separate these from the next two steps because this should be where it ends. If a believer comes to you with a sin that you have committed against them, you should be willing to apologize. Confession of sin happens first to God, but you also should confess, that means agree about your sinfulness, with those whom your sin has affected in the fellowship. That would restore someone to fellowship in the body of believers. But there is a challenge to this restoration. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now notice, this has the possibility of rendering a confession but it is already setting the stage for prosecution. These two or three may help to convince the fellow believer, perhaps in recognizing the seriousness of the issue, but the purpose of two or three witnesses is so that the sin can be confirmed. So that when judgment is handed down, it is handed down on a biblical principle that is correct. And so, step three, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now we're mixing two different uh, concepts here. The church will in the future include Gentiles, future to this point. The church will begin as the believing remnant of Israel the Israel of God, those who believe in Jesus as the Messiah and so receive the Holy Spirit as a permanent indwelling being. And so, as he teaches these apostles, he says, let them be unclean to you, just like you would not associate with a tax collector, just like you would not associate with a Gentile. If this believer refuses to admit his sin, to confess his sin, to agree that his sin was sinful, he should not remain as part of the local fellowship. He should be cast out. This is the doctrine of excommunication. Probably one of the least fun things to talk about in all of the New Testament, but here it is. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, 
it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Notice this has absolutely nothing to do with spiritual warfare. This has absolutely nothing to do with prayer. It is a bad doctrine that you need two or three people to gather together for your prayers to be efficacious. God hears the prayers of the individual just like he hears the prayers of the congregation. You are not weaker in your prayers because you don't have partners in prayer. Some of the most powerful prayers recorded in scripture were uttered in private. The context here is church discipline. The legal process within the body of Christ, how believers handle one another. Remember, we are not supposed to go to secular courts to deal with one another. We're told that we will even judge the angels. Why don't we judge our own affairs? We judge them on biblical principles. If we send them to secular courts, they're judged on secular principles. We ought to operate in the body of Christ as God has taught us in his word. And so the agreement of two or three witnesses is necessary to excommunicate a believer from the local fellowship. Only from unconfessed or un or uh, the uh, refusal to agree about sinfulness, refusal to change one's mind about that sinfulness, the unwillingness to be restored to fellowship spiritually results in the disability or inability to remain in the fellowship physically. We see this in 1 Corinthians 5 as well, a sexual sin that causes one to be excommunicated from the body of Corinth. And what happens to that person is they come out from the protection of the fellowship. They are no longer covered by God's protection. They are handed over to the devil who may put them to death. This is a sad and quite frightening doctrine. Fellowship is a protection for believers having a local body of believers for edification. It is dangerous for a believer to be out in the wild on his own. It is dangerous for a believer to be out of fellowship, both with God and with the body of Christ. But notice this is not an argument that happens between just two people. This has to be a church issue. Because here, this term binding and loosing, as we discussed last time, has both a legislative and a judicial uh, factor in the Jewish concept in the first century. The legislative concept is not present here in this passage, but the judicial one is. Whatever judgment is handed down by the agreement of two or three fellow believers in the body of Christ here, and it alludes here, and later doctrine will teach, that this is leadership in the church, Without the leader being present in the local body, the congregation can't choose just to oust someone from the body. This is something you take to the elders in your local fellowship. But there is also a forgiveness principle. Just as someone can become so unfruitful 
because his mind has turned to carnality and he becomes effectually dead spiritually, though his soul is still protected, though he will still survive the fires, but he will have nothing to show for it. So someone can be cast out of the fellowship, but this does not cast them out of salvation. This does not cast them out of the promise of eternity to come. This does not in any way threaten their eternal security, but it may put their rewards in jeopardy because this is reflective of an unrepentant lifestyle, a lifestyle lived in carnality. And carnality is not sexual sin. Carnality is dependence on the flesh rather than dependence on the spirit. This can be any sort of legalism where you seek to earn your own rewards by your own flesh. This can be seeking to gain the end that you want by telling white lies to get there. The ends do not justify the means if the means are sinful. This is carnality. But then Peter, hearing Jesus' stern warning, and I think getting a little excited about this, because remember, Peter was told just a couple of chapters earlier, you not only have the keys to the kingdom, but whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So Peter's thinking, I am top dog. All right, how often if someone... Uh, needs forgiveness, how often should I forgive them before I kick them out of the fellowship? How many times do they get to screw off before I send them to Satan for execution? Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now, Peter probably thought he was being very generous here because the Pharisees taught that you only had to forgive someone three times and then they could be condemned for their sin even if they were repentant. But Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 or 70 times seven. Now, I am always reticent to take numbers, anything but literally, but I honestly do not think Jesus is teaching that you need to count 490 times and then stop forgiving someone. I think the message is pretty clear in plain speech here. Jesus is being... Uh, Oh, I can't remember the word for that. Jesus is exaggerating here. If you are counting up to 490 times, you're probably not forgiving in the first place. If you're counting every wrong that your fellow believer has done against you, you have not forgiven them. Jesus is teaching that you should forgive infinitely. There is no number of times that a believer in the fellowship uh, can use up. If a believer comes and says, you've wronged me, and the believer says, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, or I did mean to, and I am apologetic that I did that, this could happen 490 times. And yeah, it might be pretty frustrating, but we are to be as forgiving as we are forgiven. And you know, there is also no limit to how many times we can confess our sins to God and be forgiven. We are forgiven each and every time because his blood covers each and every sin. And so Jesus says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his slave. 
Now, this is a fairly long parable, but essentially what happens in this parable is a king is owed 10 to 15 billion dollars. And he forgives that debt. Now, that debtor was owed 10 to 15 thousand dollars. And he refuses to forgive that debt. 10 to 15 billion dollars is impossible to repay. This is the gross GDP of Virginia. This is an amount that this man could not have repaid to this ruler. Just like there is nothing we can do to pay our debt to God. But yet, this man was unwilling to forgive a debt that probably could be repaid. This is comparing pennies to stacks and stacks and stacks of cash. This is comparing a pittance to a mountain. God has forgiven you, and it cost him the life of his son. There should be nothing standing between you and forgiveness of a fellow believer. The end of this parable, then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. This is not teaching outer darkness. This is not teaching that a believer will be tormented in the kingdom if he is unfaithful. Surprisingly, that is a doctrine that is taught. This is also not teaching the loss of salvation in any means. This is talking about excommunication, being handed over to Satan on this earth. Notice the interesting turn of events here. The one who is unwilling to forgive his brother and would rather have him cast out is himself cast out. The issue of forgiveness is crucial to fellowship. Now, at this point, Jesus and the rest of the disciples prepare to go down to Jerusalem. For the first time since Jesus turned over the tables two years earlier. Now, the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, that is the Feast of Tabernacles, was near. This is where Jesus will one day establish the Messianic Kingdom in Israel. Therefore, his brothers, his genetic brothers, said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. They're taunting him. They are unbelievers. And they're saying, Why don't you go down to Jerusalem and set up that kingdom? You claim to be the Messiah. Go show everybody. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. 
They're saying, you're not really the Messiah, you're hiding. John notes here, not even his brothers were believing in him. Even his brothers were unbelievers at this point. A prophet is not welcome in his hometown. And so Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. You see, Jesus' time that he is speaking of is his death in Jerusalem. But you know, death is always waiting on their doorsteps, and it has eternal consequences if they remain in their unbelief. It is always time for them to believe in Jesus the Messiah for salvation, but it is not yet his time to provide the sacrifice to complete that salvation. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it and its deeds are evil. Why can the world not hate them? Because at this time they are part of the cosmos system. They are part of the world and the world does not hate its own. The world has no beef with these brothers because the world, the flesh and the devil seeks to destroy the believer. Those who have sided themselves against the world, against the world system and the ruler of this world. These brothers, they'll be left alone unless they start to believe in Jesus. Then the world will hate them just as it hates Jesus. And his brothers do become believers. And they are martyred for it. So Jesus tells them, go up to the feast yourselves. Go alone. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And so having said these things, he stayed in Galilee. Now this is about a three-day journey from Galilee down to, or up to Jerusalem, I guess, south, but uh, higher elevation. He stays in Galilee long enough for his brothers to leave, but he does go down to the festival. When his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, but not publicly, as if in secret. Oops. Hang on. I know I put this in here for a reason. Yeah. All right. Well, here. Luke 9, 51 to 53. Oh, that's why. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Now notice Jesus is determined to fulfill the will of God. He is acting on God's behalf, and that is going to be the primary uh, statement of Jesus, or the most repeated statements of Jesus, while he is at the Feast of Tabernacles, that he does not come to preach his own message, but God's message. He doesn't come by his own will, but he comes for God's will, because he is laying the groundwork here for his own crucifixion. And they seek to go through Samaria. He sends messengers ahead of him to pre prepare places to sleep. In the same way he had done this earlier, preparing them ahead of time to see what houses would be welcoming to Jesus the Messiah. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. No one in Samaria was willing to accept a Jew heading south. 
because the temple, especially at this time during the Feast of Booths, stood in opposition to their temple at Mount Gerizim. Their false religion, their false claim to the God of Abraham in the wrong temple on the wrong mountain. Jews going down from Galilee through Samaria into Jerusalem was a threat to their religion. And so they did not allow them to go through Samaria. Some even recount, I think it's Josephus, that Jews were killed in Samaria while they were on their way to Jerusalem. Now, James and John don't like this discrimination. This is religious discrimination, but it is also racial discrimination, and they don't like it. The Samaritans and the Jews have lots of spats that uh, don't really need to be because the Samaritans are only half Jews by the, uh, by the blood of Abraham. And so when his disciples, James and John, see this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now remember, Jesus has just been teaching them about the coming judgments. And here they've been dissed by the Samaritans. And Jesus, or in, uh, James and John say, well, let's get this over with for them. Let's burn them up. They get the name Sons of Thunder from this. But notice this uh, rather spiteful act by John, and he becomes the apostle of love. We're going to study the epistle of 1 John in the fall, and uh, you won't recognize his words as uh, the same man who said this. But Jesus turns and rebukes them. All three of the seemingly top apostles now have been rebuked by Jesus for operating in Satan's realm rather than the spiritual realm or at the uh, Holy Spirit's realm. He said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Jesus has two advents. The first advent, he comes to save. The second advent, he comes to judge. This is not the purpose of his first advent to bring the judgment that he had taught them was coming in the last days. And so they were going along the road, or, oh, I skipped a passage. They uh, went around Samaria. They went through the land of Perea. And as they're going, Jesus has three more opportunities to teach his disciples about the cost of discipleship. This is absolutely not the cost of salvation. The cost of salvation is nothing to you and everything to God. But for discipleship, there may be a cost. They were going along the road and someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now remember what Jesus had taught his disciples already. The cost of discipleship is follow me, pick up your cross, and... Uh, Shoot, I can't remember the other one. Deny yourself. Thank you, Matthew. Yes, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. These were the three principles of discipleship that Jesus had taught his disciples. And so, this man who says, I will follow you wherever you go, is tested in this area of discipleship. Will he truly follow 
wherever he goes. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Discipleship may be uncomfortable. Our physical luxuries may not be met. Jesus has already shown his disciples that their physical needs will be met. They might go hungry, but they won't starve. They might not get to sleep on a bed, but they will have a restful night's sleep. They will have the energy they need for the task ahead. The foxes have holes, the birds have the air, or of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Will this man follow Jesus and deny his earthly comforts? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. He may have decided to follow Jesus and deny his earthly comforts. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is to teach that discipleship may be costly. Now here, Jesus initiates a conversation. He said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go down and bury my father. He said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. He is testing this man in the area of denying himself. Now in the Jewish frame of context or frame of mind, this statement becomes a little more apparent as to what it means and what the issue is exactly. It might seem unsympathetic of Jesus to say, no, you can't bury your dead dad. Come now. But this is not what is going on here. Part of Jewish culture, part of honoring one's parents, and part of the birthright of the eldest is to wait until the father has died and then spend another year taking care of whatever process needs to be taken care of for the death of the father and what happens after the death. And then on the one-year anniversary of his death, to say a prayer from his grave, recognizing God's sovereignty in the matter. So this man is asking Jesus for at least a year, if not more, and that is if his dad is on his deathbed. This man is basically saying, not yet, Jesus, give it a couple of years, and then I'll follow. Within a year, Jesus will have already been crucified, resurrected, and ascended back to heaven, and the church in Jerusalem will have been established already. This man is basically asking to be, or asking not to be a disciple. So he says, allow the dead to bury their own dead. I think he's using a play on words here of the spiritually dead. They don't have a job to do for me. But you do. When you are called upon for discipleship, that is the time for discipleship. We let God decide. We don't decide for ourselves when he will use us. We are to always be ready to render ourselves useful to him, denying ourselves. But then a third asks Jesus if he can follow. He says, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit 
for the kingdom of God. Now, once again, we need to understand the social context of Israel in that day. It was divided over the issue of Jesus the Messiah. A family would be reluctant to allow one of its members to go and follow Jesus because that would likely, if not inevitably, end with the death of that child. John the Baptist had just recently been put to death, and the given explanation, though this is not the spiritually understood explanation, the Holy Spirit in Scripture tells us that it was because of Herodias' dislike of John and his preaching that he was executed. But the given statement by the authorities was that he had incited an insurrection, that he was part of Jesus the Messiah's threat to the Roman government. So the people believed he had been executed for that reason. And they would fear that any follower of Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus, this man who claims to be the Messiah, may follow him in death. Going to see someone's family before you're willing to follow the Lord, in this case, might mean that they would try to convince you not to follow. Because that would mean almost certain death. This disciple is unwilling to take up his own cross. Unwilling to bear the possibility of a martyrdom in the service of God. Well, that finally concludes number 14, and uh, we're at about an hour, so um, I am not going to continue on to 15. But this is the end of our section on the training of the king, and we will now move into the opposition of the king. This will be at the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, yeah. So uh, look forward next week to the Feast of Tabernacles. And one of these days, Lord willing, we will catch up on uh, me getting behind. All right, let us pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for your patience with us. We are thankful for the body of fellowship that you have provided in this unique dispensation, the dispensation of grace. We thank you for the church, and we thank you that you laid the groundwork while you were still on earth for your apostles to teach, to, uh, to guide by the Holy Spirit those who would still, to this day, be part of the church. We thank you for the hope that we have as the church, that one day we will be caught up in the clouds to be with you forever. We pray that we might be part of that generation, but we also pray that we will be useful to you, that we will be willing disciples, willing to serve you, even denying ourselves, even becoming martyrs. We pray that we would follow you in all things, remain in fellowship with you, depend on the Spirit for all things, and remain in fellowship and love with one another. We pray all these things in the name of your Son and by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.